Section 16 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hopner was a painter of decided genius. Some of his portraits are equal to any modern portraits, and his Venus is certainly fine. He had an awful temper, the most spiteful person I ever knew. He and I were members of a club called the Council of Trent, so named from its consisting of thirty, and because on one occasion I was interesting myself about the admission of an artist whom Hopner disliked, Hopner wrote me a letter full of the bitterest reproach. Yet he had his good qualities. He had been a singing boy at Windsor, and consequently was allowed, quote, the run of the royal kitchen. But some time after his marriage, and it was supposed through the ill offices of West, that favour was withdrawn, and in order to conceal the matter from his wife, who he knew would be greatly vexed at it, Hopner occasionally, after secretly pocketing a roll to dine upon, would go out for the day, and on his return pretend that he had been dining at Windsor. He and Gifford were the dearest friends in the world, and yet they were continually falling out and abusing each other. One morning Hopner, having had some little domestic quarrel with Mrs. Hopner, exclaimed very vehemently, Is there not a man to be pitied, who has such a wife and such a friend? Meaning Gifford. His wife and daughter were always grumbling, because when he was asked to the Duchess of Blanks or to Lord Blanks, they were not invited also, and he once said to them, I might as well attempt to take the York wagon with me as you. Indeed, society is so constituted in England that it is useless for celebrated artists to think of bringing their families into the highest circles, where themselves are admitted only on account of their genius. Their wives and daughters must be content to remain at home. Gifford was extremely indignant at an article on his translation of Juvenal, which appeared in the Critical Review, and he put forth a very angry answer to it, a large quarto pamphlet. I lent my copy to Byron, and he never returned it. One passage in that pamphlet is curious, because it describes what Gifford was himself eventually to become, a reviewer who is compared to a huge toad sitting under a stone, and besides, the passage is very picturesque. Quote, During my apprenticeship, I enjoyed perhaps as many places as scrub, though I suspect they were not altogether so dignified. The chief of them was that of a planter of cabbages in a bit of ground which my master held near the town. It was the decided opinion of Panurge, that the life of a cabbage planter was the safest and pleasantest in the world. I found it safe enough, I confess, but not altogether pleasant, and therefore took every opportunity of attending to what I liked better, which happened to be watching the actions of insects and reptiles, and among the rest, of a huge toad. I never loved toads, but I never molested them, for my mother had early bid me remember that Every living thing had the same maker as myself, 
and the words always rang in my ears. This toad, then, who had taken up his residence under a hollow stone in a hedge of blind nettles, I used to watch for hours together. It was a lazy, lumpish animal that squatted on its belly and poked up its hideous head with two glazed eyes, precisely like a critical reviewer. In this posture, perfectly satisfied with itself, it would remain as if it were part of the stone which sheltered it, till the cheerful buzzing of some winged insect provoked it to give signs of life. The dead glare of its eyes then brightened into a vivid luster, and it awkwardly shuffled to the entrance of its cell and opened its detestable mouth to snap the passing fly or honeybee. Since I have marked the manners of the critical reviewers, these passages of my youth have often occurred to me. End of quote. Footnote. An examination of the strictures of the critical reviewers on the translation of Juvenile by W. Gifford Esquire. End of footnote. When the quarterly review was first projected, Gifford sent Hopner to my house with a message requesting me to become a contributor to it, which I declined. That odd being Dr. Monsey, physician to the Royal Hospital Chelsea, used to hide his banknotes in various holes and corners of his house. One evening before going out, he carefully deposited a bundle of them among the coals in the parlour grate where the fire was ready for lighting. Presently, his housekeeper came into the parlour with some of her female friends to have a comfortable cup of tea, and she was in the act of lighting the fire when the doctor luckily returned and rescued his notes. A friend of mine who had been intimate with Monsey assured me that this was fact. Bishop Horsley one day met Monsey in the park. These are dreadful times, said Horsley. Not only do deists abound, but, would you think it, Doctor, some people deny that there is a God. I can tell you, replied Monsey, what is equally strange. Some people believe that there are three. Horsley immediately walked away. An Englishman and a Frenchman having quarrelled, they were to fight a duel. Being both great cowards, they agreed, for their mutual safety, of course, that the duel should take place in a room perfectly dark. The Englishman had to fire first. He groped his way to the hearth, fired up the chimney, and brought down the Frenchman who had taken refuge there. Humphrey Howarth, the surgeon, was called out, and made his appearance in the field stark naked, to the astonishment of the challenger, who asked him what he meant. I know, said H, that if any part of the clothing is carried into the body by a gunshot wound, festering ensues, and therefore I have met you thus. His antagonist declared that fighting with a man in poorest naturalibus would be quite ridiculous, and accordingly they parted without further discussion. Lord Alvinley, on returning home after his duel with young O'Connell, gave a guinea to the hackney coachman who had driven him out and brought him back. The man, surprised at the largeness of the sum, said, My lord, I only took you two blank 
Alvanley interrupted him. My friend, the guinea is for bringing me back, not for taking me out. I was on a visit to Lord Bath at Longleat, when I received a letter from Beckford inviting me to Font Hill. I went there and stayed three days. On arriving at the gate, I was informed that neither my servant nor my horses could be admitted, but that Mr. Beckford's attendants and horses should be at my service. The other visitors at that time were Smith, who published views in Italy, and a French ecclesiastic, a very elegant and accomplished man. During the day, we used to drive about the beautiful grounds in pony chaises. In the evening, Beckford would amuse us by reading one of his unpublished works, or he would extemporise on the pianoforte, producing the most novel and charming melodies, which, by the by, his daughter, the Duchess of Hamilton, can do also. I was struck rather by the refinement than by the magnificence of the hospitality at Fonthill. I slept in a bedroom which opened into a gallery where lights were kept burning the whole night. In that gallery was a picture of St. Antonio to which it was said that Beckford would sometimes steal and pay his devotions. Beckford read to me the two unprinted episodes of Vathek, and they are extremely fine, but very objectionable on account of their subjects. Indeed, they show that the mind of the author was to a certain degree diseased. The one is the story of a prince and princess, a brother and sister. The other is the tale of a prince who was violently enamoured of a lady, and who, after pursuing her through various countries, at last overtakes her, only to find her a corpse. In one of these tales there is an exquisite description of a voyage down the Nile. Beckford is the author of two burlesque novels, Azemia and The Elegant Enthusiast. I have a copy of the former which he presented to me. He read to me another tale which he had written, a satirical one. It was in French and about a man who was ridiculously fond of dogs, etc., etc., I have been told that a part of his own life was shadowed out in it. This tale he never printed. In fact, he had no wish to obtain literary reputation. He despised it. I have seen Beckford shed tears while talking of his deceased wife. His eldest daughter, Mrs. Ord, who has been long dead, was both in appearance and disposition a perfect angel. Her delight was not to be admired herself, but to witness the admiration which her sister, the Duchess of Hamilton, never failed to excite. Beckford was eventually reduced to such straits that he was obliged to part with his pictures one by one. The last picture which he sold to the National Gallery was Bellini's portrait of the Doge of Venice. It was hung up the very day on which Beckford died. The Duke of Hamilton wrote a letter to me requesting that it might be returned to the family, but his application came too late. When Pawson dined with me, I used to keep him within bounds, but I frequently met him at various houses where he got completely drunk. He would not scruple to return to the dining room after the company had left it, 
pour into a tumbler the drops remaining in the wine glasses and drink off the omnium gatherum. I once took him to an evening party at William Spencer's where he was introduced to several women of fashion, Lady Crewe, etc., who were very anxious to see the great Grecian. How do you suppose he entertained them? Chiefly by reciting an immense quantity of old forgotten Vauxhall songs. He was far from sober, and at last talked so oddly that they all retired from him, except Lady Crewe, who boldly kept her ground. I recollect her saying to him, Mr. Pawson, that joke you have borrowed from Joe Miller, and his rather angry reply, Madam, it is not in Joe Miller. You will not find it either in the preface or in the body of that work, no, nor in the index. I brought him home as far as Piccadilly, where, I'm sorry to add, I left him sick in the middle of the road. When anyone told Pawson that he intended to publish a book, Pawson would say, remember that two parties must agree on that point, you and the reader. I asked him what time it would take him to translate the Iliad, literally and correctly, into English prose. He answered, at least ten years. He used to say that something may be pleaded as a sort of excuse for the wickedness of the worst characters in Shakespeare. For instance, Iago is tortured by suspicions that Othello has been too intimate with his wife. Richard III, the murderer of children, has been bitterly taunted by one of the young princes, etc. If I had a carriage, said Pawson, and if I saw a well-dressed person on the road, I would always invite him in and learn of him what I could. Such was his love of knowledge. He was fond of repeating these lines and wrote them out for me. What fools are mankind, and how strangely inclined to come from all places with horses and chaises by day and by dark to the falls of Lanark. For good people, after all, what is a waterfall? It comes roaring and grumbling and leaping and tumbling and hopping and skipping and foaming and dripping and struggling and toiling and bubbling and boiling and beating and jumping and bellowing and thumping. I have much more to say upon both Lynn and Bonnet on, but the trunks are tied on, and I must be gone. These lines evidently suggested to Southey his playful verses on the cataract of Lodore. Readers note, the following remarks were made by Pawson. When Prometheus made man, he had used up all the water in making other animals, so he mingled his clay with tears. Pawson would almost cry when he spoke of Euripides. Why should I write from myself, while anything remains to be done to such a writer as Euripides? When repeating a generous action from antiquity, or describing a death like Persians, his eyes would fill and his voice falter. Of Mackintosh. He means to get interest on his principle. Of Sheridan. He is a promising fellow. 
all wit, true reasoning. I love an octavo. The pages are soon read. The milestones occur frequently. If I had three thousand pounds per annum, I would have a person constantly dressed night and day with fire and candle to attend upon me. He is an uncertain sleeper. I must confess to have a very strong prejudice against all German original literature. In drawing a villain, we should always furnish him with something that may seem to justify himself to himself. Authority should serve to excite attention, and no farther. End of section 16